0: One week after a prolonged labor and vaginal delivery, a 33-year-old woman wakes up in the middle of the night with her heart pounding and a little shortness of breath. Her sister drives her to the emergency room where workup for a blood clot is negative and she is sent home with Ativan for panic attacks. Over the course of the next week, she notices some palpitations and an increase in leg swelling accompanied by shortness of breath with activity, but she feels like she can manage until her six-week postpartum visit with her obstetrician. At the end of the second postpartum week, she wakes up gasping for air and is transported to the hospital where she is diagnosed with severe peripartum cardiomyopathy. Welcome to The Hurt by Dr. Mira Paker and Dr.
1: Alobi Patel. We are the Female Pain Docs. This is a platform to contribute to the public discourse on women's pain and general health. We are here to empower women and men to engage in the advancement of their health
0: with discussions of evidence-based medicine, unconventional topics, lifestyle modifications, and more. The views contained in this podcast are our personal views and do not represent the views of our institutions. This does not substitute medical advice. Please be evaluated by a physician if necessary. Welcome back to another episode of The Hurt, Season 3. We have a very special episode today with a guest co-host, Dr. Viva Mahendra. Dr. Mahendra is a board-certified anesthesiologist who is fellowship trained in obstetric anesthesiology. She has several years of experience in the field of obstetric anesthesiology, including being the obstetric anesthesiology director of labor and delivery and a board member of the Society of Obstetric Anesthesiology and Perinatology, otherwise known as SOAP. She is also the founder of Safe Partum, which is a healthcare initiative promoting maternal and neonatal wellness, as well as labor and delivery safety. Dr. Mahendra is passionate about maternal health and is actively involved in several other initiatives, advocating and educating providers and patients alike around all issues relevant to maternal health. We are both excited to share this special episode with our listeners.
1: Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Today I'm going to talk about something that has been in the news a lot over the last decade, and that is maternal health and mortality and morbidity during pregnancy and postpartum. But instead of talking just generically about the issues, I'm going to try to answer the following four questions during this discussion, and they are who is dying, when are they dying, why are they dying, and then provide a three-phase solution that obstetric anesthesiologists can participate in.
0: Thank you, Dr. Mahindra. And we have all seen these headlines, and they suggest that race, socioeconomic status, and demographics are the primary drivers of poor maternal outcomes. Are these some of the main problems in
1: the problems that you had mentioned earlier? So first, let's talk about the extent of the problem. In the United States, the current mortality rate is 17.4 maternal deaths per 100,000 live births, which is actually quite low compared to historical rates, as well as in comparison to countries in Africa and Southeast Asia. The highest rate in the world is actually in Sierra Leone currently, at over 1,000 per 100,000 births. Their rate is close to 1 in 75 women who deliver a live infant. But I think what frightens people in the United States about maternal mortality is that when we compare our rate of 17 per 100,000 to other nations of similar socioeconomic standing, like Canada, Australia, and Western Europe, we are outliers by a factor of 10. And by the way, this is not just limited to maternal mortality. Our general population life expectancies are also similarly reduced compared to other highly developed nations. So as a country, we spend the most on healthcare by a lot but this money is not resulting in better overall health or increased lifespan. These findings are accentuated in Black and Native American communities, and this is a trend that carries forward even throughout pregnancy. I will say though that when we view uh, maternal health disparities, we should actually be thinking about these as beginning long before pregnancy. Pre-pregnancy chronic conditions, environmental stress, inadequate education, and poor socioeconomic status create sickness. And when these women become pregnant, they start the pregnancy at a huge physiologic and psychologic disadvantage. Wow, that
0: is actually very interesting. So there are many sort of factors to consider into this bigger picture. And it's not just what the final numbers are, but how are we getting this information, which I assume is going to play a big part about actually fixing the problem. So
1: where do we start? So the questions to ask, first of all, are how do we measure maternal mortality and how long have we been trending it? So maternal mortality is the number of maternal deaths per 100,000 live births in the immediate postpartum period. So to count toward this ratio, a death has to occur during pregnancy or within 42 days of delivery, and it needs to be related to or aggravated by the pregnancy or its management. Maternal mortality ratio, also known as MMR, is a statistic that we often compare between ethnicities or countries. And then, just as a reminder, even though the postpartum period ends at 42 days, we still consider a death to be pregnancy related if it meets the same conditions and occurs within the first postpartum year. So, you asked about where the data comes from. So, publicly available US data on maternal mortality goes all the way back to about a century ago. And um, we're going to talk a little bit about the trends in this data over the last century. So, in 1915, So a little over 100 years ago, maternal mortality was almost 900 maternal deaths per 100,000 births. So that's almost like one in 100. And that's a little bit less than what Sierra Leone has as its current rate. So fortunately in the U.S., this rate has dropped dramatically to an overall U.S. rate of 17.4 per 100,000. This data is maybe a couple of years old. So probably new 2022 or 2021 data is going to come out soon. Uh, Also, improvements in healthcare, nutrition, and hygiene account for the dramatic reduction in maternal deaths since the 1915 data that came out, but still many of the present-day deaths are preventable. And then also, it's really important to understand that the rate that we have of 17 per 100,000 reflects an overall population maternal mortality ratio, but there are huge differences in rates between Black, Native American, and white women that date all the way back to the 1900s. So in 1915, Black mothers were dying at a rate of 1.8 times that of white mothers, and sadly, this has actually gotten worse over time. So in 2018, Black mothers were dying at a rate of 2.5 times that of white mothers.
0: Wow, that is a huge difference and, and quite upsetting that such a disparity still exists. And even though there have been many changes over the last century, it's shocking that we haven't done more, especially for the differences between Black and white mothers, so where do we stand now in comparison to the rest of the world in terms of maternal deaths?
1: So the average MMR in the European Union is actually only eight maternal deaths per 100,000 life births. And then in places like Finland and Sweden, the rate is even lower at three to four per 100,000. And then, as I mentioned before, uh, Sierra Leone has the highest mortality rate of 1360 deaths per 100,000, which is one in 75, which is just astonishing. But I think for our discussion today, we're going to focus on U.S. mortality and kind of our um, Western Europe counterparts, because even for our level of wealth, we are outliers by a lot. So the way I think about this problem is that the United States has two major issues. The first one is, why is our overall rate higher than our European counterparts? And then why is there such a dramatic racial disparity? If you're wondering whether the racial disparity accounts for the overall rate being higher, it is the single largest contributor, but even white mortality rates in the US are 14 per 100,000, which is higher than the European average of eight. So even when we account for race, there is something very, very wrong. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And even though we have come so far, it seems like it's still just not far enough. Each maternal death is such a devastating loss.
1: Well, that's the thing, right? You know, we reduce individuals to statistics to be able to grasp the degree of the problem. But each maternal death is devastating on many levels and affects the entire community and family, especially the life trajectory of the deceased woman's children.
0: Yes, absolutely. And it's just heartbreaking. And I'm curious, where are a lot of these statistics actually coming from?
1: So global data is usually reported by task forces from a variety of international agencies like the World Health Organization, UNICEF, UNFPA, and a few others. But domestic maternal outcomes are reported to the state by individual hospitals. States then report this data to the CDC. And then epidemiologists use data from the CDC-led pregnancy mortality surveillance system to analyze the death records from from the data that's submitted by all 50 states and D.C. And the most meaningful outcomes from this data are the things that we talked about, which are pregnancy-related mortality, which again refers to death during pregnancy or within one year after, and the MMR, maternal mortality ratio, which is the number of maternal deaths per 100,000 live births, and that MMR ratio, remember, is limited to the 42 days postpartum.
0: Interesting. And I'm learning a lot right now myself So are maternal mortality ratio or the pregnancy-related mortality good
1: indicators of what we want to measure so we can figure out how to prevent these deaths? Well, death is a very extreme endpoint, obviously, that we use because it is really easy to measure. It's yes or no, and it reflects the worst possible outcome. But in my opinion, survival alone is just way too low a bar to indicate quality. So we shouldn't take it as that. But what it does do is provide tangible endpoints that we can use whenever we're trying to set goals for maternal mortality. So one way in which MMR has been used is by the United Nations. So they've set a target global MMR of less than 70 maternal deaths per 100,000 live births by 2030. And, you know, at 17 per 100,000, the U.S. already meets this particular MMR goal, But what we haven't met is their goal that every country should reduce their MMR by at least two-thirds from 2010. So we haven't met that yet.
0: Wow. And are these statistics that we are using
1: going to quantify our progress towards these goals? Are they reliable and accurate? So this is a really important question um, and also kind of difficult to answer, but I'm going to try. So the Pregnancy Mortality Surveillance System was implemented by the CDC in the late 1980s. And although we have data from before that, uh, we didn't have very detailed data. And so the number of reported pregnancy related deaths in the United States has appeared to increase from seven per 100,000 in 1987 to 17 per 100,000 in 2017. So most of us don't believe that this necessarily reflects an actual increase in maternal mortality over the last 30 years. And a simple explanation for this is that it has become a lot easier over the last 30 years to collect detailed data. And in the past, we were probably underreporting these outcomes, and maybe now we're overestimating a little bit. But either way, the pregnancy-related mortality ratios have been relatively stable, but they definitely haven't improved. And what's the most concerning is that there is a significant disparity between outcomes for white versus black and Native American and Alaskan women.
0: This is so much information and new to me as well. And I hope our listeners are also able to really take away a lot of information from this. Now, I do understand a little bit better about the background of the actual statistics, which is an important part to consider. And we've discussed who is dying in terms of the background. But I guess the next question is, when are mothers actually dying? So during pregnancy, labor, or the postpartum period?
1: Right. So from the U.S. data in 2020, we saw that 31% of maternal deaths occurred during pregnancy 17% were around the time of labor and delivery, and the remaining 52% were actually in the postpartum period. And one thing that this information helps us do is when we understand when they die, it almost gives us a lens into what they are dying from. Patients that die during labor and delivery are going to be dying of different things than those that die in the antepartum period or the postpartum period. So in the United States, cardiac disease, cardiomyopathy, and other associated conditions account for about 27% of deaths, and hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, which you could kind of count in that cardiovascular umbrella, account for another 6.5%. So these conditions usually show up in the second trimester, um, 20 weeks or later, and carry over through the first postpartum year. Other major contributors are sepsis, hemorrhage, and thromboembolic disease, and while a few deaths may not be preventable, like those that are secondary to, say, an amniotic fluid embolism, the overall message is that with early recognition, proper risk profiling, and rapid intervention, the majority of maternal deaths are preventable.
0: And I think that's just so important for our listeners to take away over here that when we talk about maternal mortality during the peripartum period, we, or during, pregnancy and maternal health sort of, we assume it's around labor and delivery, but 52% actually occur in the postpartum period. I find that very interesting. And like you said, this is really important to understand how to recognize and then properly intervene, depending on when these, uh, these challenges are occurring. So is there a reason why some women of color are dying
1: at higher rates? Well, here's the most important thing to understand. Black and Native American women are showing up to pregnancies with far more chronic conditions than their white counterparts, and they're also being taken less seriously than white women when they express concerns regarding pregnancy symptoms or um, postpartum symptoms to their doctors. And we know that women with Medicaid coverage also report higher rates of inadequate postpartum care and support. Uh, people have been tempted to attribute this to genetics or biology. But with the exception of some genetic differences that confer a higher risk of, say, peripartum cardiomyopathy to women of African descent, there is really no biologic explanation that accounts for this degree of disparity that we're seeing. But when you look at the fact that cardiovascular conditions and hypertensive diseases are the underlying cause of over 30% of maternal deaths, then you have to realize that the fact that Black women aged 18 to 35 having a 58% higher likelihood of having hypertension when they are compared to white women, that because of that, race is going to indirectly become a risk factor for maternal death. Do you understand what I mean by that? That they're just showing up sicker with more chronic conditions, and there is some um, systemic issues that are causing certain ethnicities to have those chronic conditions. Um, And so indirectly, race is going to Contribute to maternal deaths. But again, you know, we're talking about race as a social construct, not a biologic one.
0: Right. And I think, again, this is so important for our listeners to take away that there are many nuances to these statistics, to these maternal deaths, as well as our own sort of predispositions um, in the healthcare field. And this is also a very important part of the solution to recognize this part of delivering healthcare. And the extent of the problem is already overwhelming. But is it even possible to have a solution when it's so sort of deeply
1: entrenched? Well, you know, sadly, whatever we've tried so far hasn't really worked. Um, Despite, you know, I would say a decade at least of enhanced awareness of this problem, we haven't seen any meaningful improvement in our data. And I think this means that we just need to be a little bit more focused and goal oriented. Right. Right. And as anesthesiologists, I think
0: we play a significant role in the peripartum period, which is, you know, around that labor and delivery period. But what do you say to people who think or assume that an anesthesiologist's job is just to put in an epidural?
1: Well, this is a really common assumption uh, made by patients, made by other um, physicians as well. But people really respond when I explain why the scope of practice and expertise for obstetric anesthesiologists is actually a lot broader than that. You know, OB anesthesiologists are part of the solution, uh, especially on labor and delivery and in the first few postpartum weeks. You know, we have expertise that crosses specialties. I I can't tell you the number of times I had a pregnant patient in the ICU for some severe pathology where the intensivist didn't have a lot of experience with pregnancy and the obstetrician didn't have a lot of experience with critical care. And, in every single case, an obstetric anesthesiologist's understanding of critical care medicine and obstetrics was really valued, and I think served the patient really well.
0: I absolutely do agree with that. And you hit the nail on the head. OB anesthesiologists are often the cohesive part of the of uh, the solution and delivery of care for for the overall benefit of the obstetric patient and i really do admire the work that you and the society of obstetric anesthesiology and Perinatology are doing to take more on of this initiative. so what do you think is a proper approach to combating these issues that we have just discussed today?
1: So the first step is just to get really granular about what our goals are uh, and keep it really focused. So i would say we need to focus on achieving two goals. The first is to equalize mortality rates between races. And the second goal would be to drop our overall mortality rate to less than 10 in 100,000. And that goal I would set just based on what our counterparts in Western Europe um, have achieved.
0: And that sounds like a very big goal, but I, I really do hope that we can kind of break it down and start addressing the ways that we can accomplish this. So what are some of your thoughts on how we can accomplish this?
1: Well, doctors who care for women during pregnancy can't achieve these goals alone. That is uh, for sure. Um, Oftentimes, also, the damage and the risk profile for a woman was set long before she reaches reproductive age or even pregnancy. You know, we need to be coordinating, educating, and improving health from childhood all the way on. And, you know, primary care and public health professionals are integral to the solution. I know it sounds like an insurmountable problem, so let me break it down into a 3 phase approach. So I would say phase one focuses on a woman's pre-pregnancy health. The stakeholders here are going to be all primary care providers, including pediatricians, family and internal med uh, providers, general OBGYNs, public health groups. And most importantly, and I can't emphasize this enough, is that women themselves need to be more aware and involved in maintaining good health at a young age. I think we need to openly discuss the fact that it is not normal for women who don't have any autoimmune or congenital problems to be hypertensive or obese or diabetic or have chronic kidney disease during their reproductive years. They're just too young to have these problems without some type of underlying reason. And the fact that we have so many women entering their reproductive years with preventable chronic issues is the primary cause of preventable complications once they become pregnant. Pregnancy is not going to miraculously fix all of the problems that they came to pregnancy with. And we know that educating and involving women and reducing their own risk is actually possible. A perfect example of where we've already accomplished something similar is in the area of female contraception. You know, decades ago, who would have imagined that the average woman with average medical literacy would have the tools and education to be in control of her own reproductive choices? You know, we can model our programs in a similar way. The next step is to discuss what to do when a woman is planning to or is already pregnant. So this is phase two. So once a woman is or plans to become pregnant, we need to optimize her medically and psychosocially. The stakeholders here are going to be the obstetricians and maternal fetal medicine specialists, obstetric anesthesia, and relevant subspecialists to whatever chronic condition the patient has. So how do we tighten our focus to the right women? To be able to identify women who are at high risk, we need to assess them, first of all, for active or um, high-risk issues in pregnancy, um, screen them for chronic diseases if they haven't had good pre-pregnancy care, and also kind of identify patients who still, based on race, may be having higher risk of chronic disease or pregnancy-related problems then we need to identify patients by their timing or their stage of pregnancy. So women in the preconception period are probably our greatest opportunity to reduce risk factors for chronic disease or get their active diseases under control before they become pregnant. But for the most part, patients show up to us pregnant, right? So in the early pregnancy phase, you know, this is still a good time to get chronic conditions under control. Women who present to us a little bit later, like in second trimester, and onward require multidisciplinary discussions around risk mitigation and delivery planning. This plan needs to include anesthesiologists. And once patients are on labor and delivery, um, we need to continue our multidisciplinary planning and communication, and this is essential for seeing women through the delivery safely. Finally, once women are postpartum, which is a particularly vulnerable time like we discussed, we have to train our patients and ourselves to pay closer attention to their symptoms. We need to listen to patients, we need to monitor them appropriately, and arrange adequate follow-up. In my opinion, that single six-week postpartum visit is just not enough. So this brings us to phase three, and phase three is the most concrete area for improvement. We need to increase competence among healthcare workers, specifically non-OBs who come into contact with pregnant women. Priority groups would be emergency medicine physicians and mid-levels, as well as non-OB-trained anesthesiologists who provide care on labor and delivery. We need to be integrating these types of topics into medical school and residency curricula. You know, in my opinion, there is an overall lack of competence around pregnancy-related symptoms by pretty much all providers who are not OB, MFM, or OB anesthesia. And I, you know, I serve on a committee that reviews individual maternal deaths in our region, and it didn't take long to recognize that there is a clear pattern among cases of maternal death. The deceased are almost always women who are poor, who are delivering in small community hospitals, and ask for help only to find that their symptoms are brushed aside as being benign and pregnancy-related. You know, providers, through no fault of their own, you know, I think it's a lack of training, but they look at a 30-year-old woman and suspect anxiety or asthma, not cardiomyopathy. And inevitably, these patients are visiting multiple facilities to be told the same thing, oh, there's nothing wrong with you, you can go home. And then we find out that they later die at home or in the emergency room during a final visit. The case that we started with is a perfect example of the cycle of bouncing in and out of ERs until you wind up in a catastrophic outcome. So, you know, pregnancy and postpartum disease phenotypes need to be taught formally. For too long, you know, we've treated pregnant women just like non-pregnant adults. And the way that we do this is to identify core competencies for pregnancy that need to be introduced early in training, like in medical school. We need a multidisciplinary team at every stage. And as patients are becoming more complex, the care team has to diversify. So if you ask me, a task force to identify these core competencies has to include MFM, OB, OB anesthesia, and emergency medicine. Wow,
0: that was just such a good breakdown. A three step process, basically. So, step one focusing on women's pre pregnancy health. Step two focusing on when a woman becomes pregnant and optimizing her medically as well as psychosocially and including all the other providers. And then, step three or phase three is the most sort of concrete area that we need improvement on, which we've spoken about before, but this is really increasing awareness as well as competence amongst all healthcare workers. So I really like how you broke these down, and I hope our patients can also, um, and listeners can take away some of this information as well to advocate for themselves and uh, empower themselves to be able to speak up when they feel like they're not being heard. So thank you for that, Dr. Mahendra. and. OB anesthesiologists should absolutely be involved and included to be a part of the solution. Are any organizations currently working on on these type of solutions?
1: There are. I want to quickly just also clarify one thing that you said, which is awareness um, and competency. And just to kind of remind everyone that those two things are not exactly the same, although they are related. You know, I think awareness is just a general awareness of a problem and maybe our role, a rough idea of what our role is in the solution, whereas competencies are very clearly delineated in a curricula um, and have actual clear-cut objectives for the person who's learning those competencies. And we have the tools. We just need to be implementing them. Um, But, yeah, so um, to get back to your um, other question about any organizations that are working on these types of solutions, um, our public health agencies, you know, have been really instrumental in identifying the scope of the problem and identifying targets for improvement. But, you know, now I think it's time to move on to actual problem-solving, and there are a couple of academic centers out there, not a whole lot, um, but places like UCSF and Tufts have established Black women's health programs that include maternal health, which is a really good start. You know, these programs focus on overall women's health with sub areas for pregnancy. And I think this is perfect because if we focus on pregnancy only, we miss the largest target for improvement, which as we talked about is pre-pregnancy health in the early reproductive years.
0: Yeah, Absolutely. And this has been such an enlightening episode for me as well. I learned so much about the current situation of maternal health in our country, and I'm also hopeful for the role that we as anesthesiologists can play to improve maternal health. This topic is near and dear to both of our hearts, and I I really do hope that we can see a change over time. And uh, it's thanks to passionate anesthesiologists such as yourself that we can save the lives of mothers. So thank you, Dr. Mahindra, for your time and expertise. We look forward to more collaborations.
1: Oh, thank you, Dr. Patel. Thanks for
0: having me. We would love to hear your thoughts. Visit our Instagram at thefemalepaindocs for more content. Send us an email at thefemalepaindocs at gmail if you have any topics in particular you would like us to discuss. You can also visit our website, at www.TheFemalePainDocs.com. See you next time.